I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Scott and Bill will talk about Ambassador Ty's recent trip to an optical company in Illinois. They also discuss the contours of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework negotiating round that occurred in India last weekend, and they talk about U.S. agricultural exports to China. All that and more on this week's episode of The Trade Guys. Hi, Trade Guys. Great to see you both again. Let's kick off today with a small story that actually is telling of a bigger story in international trade, which is Ambassador Tai's recent visit to an optical company. I'm wondering if you could say a couple of words about the visit and the broader takeaways for trade. Well, she went to visit a company outside of Chicago that makes eyewear glasses and sunglasses and makes them here, likes to make them here with as much American content as it can, but has argue, has told her, told her during her visit that they can't get everything they need in the United States, particularly the acetate, and they get some of these things from China. They had a plea for eliminating the Trump-China tariffs on their particular products, some of which I think were 7.5% and some of which were 25%, depending upon what it was. Ambassador Tai's response was the real problem is that we don't make it here, you know, and that there's only one alternative source, which I'm not sure she's correct when it comes to acetate, but, and that we need to worry and that we're vulnerable. Vulnerability came up and that raises two issues. You know, what are they going to do about the tariffs, which we could talk about in a minute. The thing that bothered me about this is that the administration has admitted what everybody knows anyway, which is that in a global economy, nobody can make everything. Autarky is impossible. So what that means for government is you have to sort out what matters and what doesn't matter. And chips matter. And you can see that there's been pretty much a consensus in the United States that we should try to recover chip production here. There's a lot of other things that matter, too, from a national security perspective. And there's some things that arguably matter from a competitive perspective. I would argue steel is one of those. But sunglasses? I don't think so. If you're going to take the position that that we have to make the parts of everything that we want to buy here, there's no end to that. I'm disappointed that she didn't make any attempt to sort out what is important from what isn't important. To me, the criteria, the fundamental criterion is, is national security. And it happens that right now we're working on a project that would do exactly that looking at our export control program and uh, trying to figure out in the 21st century what needs to be controlled and what doesn't need to be controlled. The criterion is, is it going to, from an export standpoint, enhance our adversaries' military capabilities? And uh, from an import standpoint, it, it is, in a sense, what you said it was. Does it enhance our vulnerability? But we're vulnerable to a lot of things. I don't think we grow bananas in the United States, or if we do, we certainly don't grow enough. Do we have a banana crisis? I don't think so. I mean, bananas are nice. I have one every morning for breakfast, but they're not they're not critical items. And I don't think I wear critical items either, even though I'm wearing some right now. So I'm distressed that she seems inclined to have a very, very broad and probably unlimited definition of what matters. The other piece, just to continue the rant before I 
fold and yield to Scott is, you know, her answer on the tariffs was not unexpected. They've slow rolled this the entire way. They've embarked on a, a, an exclusion process. So this guy can apply to have his tariffs removed. And I think he's done that. But that began last June. And so far, I don't think they've removed a single tariff and don't seem to be on a very fast track to do it. And the reason, I think, is political. There's no decision they can make on any of these things that will be big enough for business and uh, small enough for labor and small enough for the Republicans. No matter what they do, they're going to be criticized. And so their answer has been to do nothing. And the result is you've got a lot of people like uh, this company that are kind of stuck with a product that is increasingly less competitive that they would like to make in the United States, but can't because of a few components, and they're getting no help from the government. Yeah, I agree with Bill. There's a deeper illustration here, and it's the illustration of sort of the weight of bad ideas and how they affect the economy in real ways. I want to go back to the good old 1970s. If you go back to development economics in the 1970s, there was a policy called import substitution that was practiced in a lot of places, uh, Brazil, India, you name it, the big countries who wanted to industrialize. And it was the policy to approach to industrialization was they put very high tariffs on finished goods, but lower tariffs on raw materials and intermediates with the idea that instead of importing finished cars or finished toasters or whatever it might be, you import the components and you create jobs in industry by assembling in your country. Now, this worked occasionally, didn't really work on probably on its best day, but this strategy began to fail miserably in the 1990s because of globalization. There's some wonderful case studies, auto assembly jobs in Malaysia versus Thailand, things like that, that were apparent this was a lousy strategy. Well, this program, Bill and I both criticized the Trump administration for turning that policy on its head with high tariffs on inputs and low tariffs on finished goods. This is exactly American Optical's problem. There are low tariffs on finished eyeglasses, high tariffs on acetate because of the tariff man's approach toward China and the Biden administration's inheritance of the tariff man's policy and their unwillingness to change it. What this does when you have high tariffs on inputs and like acetate and low tariffs on finished goods like finished sunglasses or finished eyewear of any sort, it makes made in USA uncompetitive at home. And so that's the apparent problem. And, you know, the administration is continuing this bad policy. I also think it is worsened by uncertainty. The fact that these tariffs are temporary. Ideally, in Ambassador Tai's fondest dream, some chemical company would make an investment in acetate production in the United States. I will guarantee you, as long as these 25% tariffs are temporary, no one makes that investment because you need certainty of the, the demand in the future in order to justify the business investment that it would take, the capital that it would take to produce acetate in the United States. So they're exacerbating their own problems by dithering on the exemption. So we have products made uncompetitive by the government action and investment that it will basically not happen because the government refuses to provide the incentives for investment. And, and look, this, this gets repeated a lot. About a year ago, we had infant formula shortage. It was several government problems. In that case, there was a regulatory problem with FDA and labeling requirements. There was a nutrition policy problem 
the Women and Infants and Children program, or WIC program, had state-by-state sole supplies, so it was a very, very structured market. And there was a trade problem, basically the tariffs and quotas and marketing orders on dairy products. As a result, we invoked some temporary measures, but they were not enough to make the market contestable, so no new entrants. Other than a couple plane loads of formula from uh, probably the PX at Ramstein Air Base <laughs> to uh, the Midwest, we still haven't solved that problem. I realized this, brought it up because my grandson is a consumer and my actually my daughter is a purchaser of, of, uh, of infant formula these days and still finds out of stocks at stores. It's, it's not as bad as it was, but this is just these persistent uh, conditions of uncertainty prevent markets from normalizing, prevent demand signals from meeting supply. The losers are American manufacturers in this case. We have high tariffs on, on the stuff to make stuff is probably one of the worst ideas that we're, but we're unable to overcome it. So end of end of story from my point of view. Well, this is actually making me feel bad because I did a bad thing over the weekend, which is purchase a very cheap pair of acetate glasses that were foreign made because the domestically made products were 400 times as expensive. I mean, it was crazy. And so uh, next time I, I put those on, I will think of this rant specifically. But you did the right thing as a consumer because you satisfied your interests with a product that was a better value. Okay, Emily, you're, uh, you behave as a consumer is always the right thing to do because you, the consumer ought to, be, ought to be sovereign in this system. I hope they were at Kansas City Chiefs sunglasses as well because uh, congratulations are in order to your Super Bowl champions. And once also evidence of something we discussed, I think, last week with the trade deficit, the consumers end up ruling, you know, despite everything we're doing with China and talking about with China and despite the balloons, the trade deficit with China is at record levels. Consumers like you, Emily, keep on buying more stuff. And that's telling. Yeah, much to the chagrin of my husband, I do keep on buying more stuff. So <laughs> let's move on to another question that's related to what you just said, Bill, which is that Several cabinet officials, including Secretary Raimondo, keep insisting that the U.S. policy is not to decouple from China. But is USTR's approach to maintaining the 301 tariffs consistent with that assertion? I mean, are we trying to decouple or are we not? I think that I phrase it differently. I think the Biden administration's approach is to bring companies back here and to bring manufacturing back here and to create jobs back here, parenthetically leaving aside the point that we don't have enough workers to fill the jobs that we got now, but that's a different question. One of these days we have to have a session on, on immigration. But so I think from, they look at it positively. It's, it's not about decoupling. It's about reshoring. And they want to do things that uh, encourages companies to return to the United States or at uh, second best is near shore or friend shore. Take your, choose your adjective. As Scott has pointed out, though, that the particular tariff we were just talking about actually makes that more difficult. They can't, I mean, for the reasons that Scott said, you're not going to find acetate companies suddenly springing up in the United States because of the tariff. So these companies are sort of stuck with the status quo. And I think what I've maintained from the beginning, I, I don't think that decoupling is entirely a government policy. You see it in, in the national security sphere. I mean, the export controls from October 7th that we've discussed a couple times really are an effort by the United States to uh, decouple America high-tech companies from helping the Chinese. 
But that's a security-related objective, not an economic-related objective. I think the decoupling that is occurring is occurring because companies are reassessing risk. And we've talked about this before, and companies are reassessing the risk of doing business with China. They look at China's weaponization of trade policies and, and realize that, you know, they could get cut off tomorrow if they don't do the right thing, or if not even them, if our government doesn't do the right thing and the Chinese are looking for a designated victim. So I think companies themselves are deciding that they would prefer to have a supply chain that doesn't include China. And you can see investment shifts to Southeast Asia, really everywhere in Southeast Asia. Vietnam is the big winner, but they're going to Thailand, they're going to the Philippines, they're going to Malaysia. Cambodia is actually having some, some success. That's not happening because the U.S. government is forcing the companies to do that. That's happening because the companies are deciding that it's in their interest to do that. I agree with Bill. Supply chains are so idiosyncratic and so focused on individual companies, individual supplier decisions that almost regardless of what the administration wants or any administration wants, uh, these decisions are, are subtle and complicated and are going to go on because of the commercial merit of the decisions. The best thing I think the administration could do is sort of stop talking and start stabilizing the policy, make things predictable. And uh, to the extent that they can do that, whether it's in uh, regulation or in working around the edges of a very important production model like North America and streamlining the ability of customers and suppliers in the production chain to work together, that would actually help. But the rest of it is, is kind of, in some ways, it's, it, we're, we're making up a story or a narrative from an actual very complicated piece of reality. So it's hard to know uh, that any of this is going to have much of an effect. Okay, well, let's move on to the other big thing that happened last weekend that was not the Super Bowl or in my world, the Rihanna concert, and there were some football players who also attended IPAF members convened in India, and these were leaders of the three pillars that are not under the auspices of USTR. So what do we know so far? Are we advancing in talks? Are there concrete outcomes? What do we know? Very little, despite efforts to find out. I was at a meeting the other day with a bunch of Southeast Asian experts, both our government, private sector, one person was there from the Hill, and nobody knew anything. And the government guy was not talking, so maybe he knew something, but he was very discreet. So the official words were, you know, we continue to make progress. We know from previous briefings that now commerce should table text for all three pillars, the two pillars in the earlier, the previous meeting and, one, and the remaining pillar at the Indian meeting. There's not a lot of sense about whether they agree to anything. There was a statement by the Indian leader that they're hoping for an early harvest which has been interpreted to mean at least one of the pillars by May, which is when there will be a ministerial meeting of the parties. Speculation then grew about which one that might be, which is the lowest hanging fruit. And I think our little consensus was probably the infrastructure pillar, because that has money in it, and money is attractive, and other, the other countries would like to get the money sooner rather than later if there's money to be gotten. If you're going to make a prediction I would look for some some sort of announcement of agreement on some part or all of the infrastructure pillar by May. There are no rumors of problems. Things seem to be moving on. Uh, on the other hand, you know, we're not talking about pillars that are as controversial or as difficult as the trade pillar. Look, this is an interesting opportunity. And I think what, what struck me is there's a lot of interest from trade associations and companies about what's going on, a lot of attention paid to it. 
If I were uh, in the advice business, I'd say give commercial diplomacy a chance. Let this work in on your behalf as a, as a sort of a U.S. foreign policy initiative. This is a region where growth is important, where it's growing faster than a lot of parts of the world, including the United States, and the countries are interested in more growth. Well, that's all good. It's an area of relative peace as well as prosperity, and it has a set of pragmatic leaders who are trying to work together to make things better in their countries. And I think that's an ideal place to accept that commercial policy or economic policy is foreign policy in this case. And let companies go in there and get in, get involved, support them in any way you can, and just ground up practically step by step, build commercial cooperation in the region as a foreign uh, foreign policy tool more than anything else. So I, this might be a little more philosophical, but how does everything you just mentioned, Scott, commercial policy, foreign policy, is that trade policy? I think one issue that's come up in the the IPEF context is really the cross cutting nature of a lot of the issue areas under discussion. We have a digital initiative, we have infrastructure, which obviously can have trade liberalizing effects over time. So is this inherently a commercial policy or trade policy, or are those two separate things? Well, you could do a lot with this sort of thing without a specific trade negotiation. You can do more with it. So this is a disappointment. It's one that Bill and I have expressed often in terms of the the great unforced error of walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. in this region and and then operating these framework agreements without trade negotiating authority is a limitation but there's lots of other things you can do the apec was a good example of a of an economic cooperation forum while it didn't accomplish everything it kept moving toward the goal pretty steadily among the member nations or member economies i should say with or without negotiating authority so yes and no. It'd be, it'd be better with trade negotiating authority, with a, a clear market access objective, with energized firms you know, helping to guide that and lowering barriers abroad, improving our export performance. But the administration chose not to do that. doesn't mean you can't do, can't do anything, but you can't do everything. Okay, well, let's move on to another topic that seems to have gotten more attention in recent weeks on the Hill, which is agriculture and ag exports. The U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator Doug McCallop at USTR has signaled an effort to ease the dependence of U.S. ag exports on China. And my first question is, is that a worthwhile goal? Is that actually a viable strategy? Do we need to reduce export dependency on China? Look, I, I, I actually like the rest of what he said. I think he's got the right idea because here we have a trade official talking about Improving market access for American agriculture. I think that's fantastic. And what he calls diversification or reducing dependency on China, what he means is opening new markets. I, I also think that's terrific. I don't know about reducing dependence so much. Look, I think American agricultural producers are pretty pragmatic. They want to sell to people who want to buy their products. And China happens to have a lot of middle class people who have spent the last couple of decades improving their diet, and that includes protein that is raised by things like U.S. soybeans. So that's okay. That all works for me. And whether we're too dependent on China or not is some ways a theoretical question. But the execution of what he's talking about is music to my ears because he's really talking about going out and removing barriers to American agricultural products. And we'll have to negotiate those, but that's okay. Uh, more, More power to him. 
No, I, I agree. I mean, it's not rocket science to figure out, if, you know, it's a good thing to expand the pie. And uh, regardless of whether the pie is made from soybeans or something else, I mean, we just had a, an interesting, albeit small, market access victory, if you will, that in, uh, where the Indians agreed to uh, reduce, not eliminate, but reduce their tariff on pecans. So Senator Ossoff in Georgia, who was involved in that, is happy. Georgian pecan growers are happy. Is that going to affect the overall U.S. trade balance in agriculture? Uh, probably not in a big way. But what the USDA is doing is, you know, you fight this battle on a hundred different fronts, and it's finding a few more sales here, a few more sales there. And I don't think it's a question of, of being dependent on the Chinese market. Agriculture is a little bit different than other places because everybody eats, everybody has to eat. So if you're a government that doesn't grow enough, or doesn't have enough food, you don't have a lot of choices. You have to buy from somebody, and American products are quality competitive and price competitive. So I'm not overly worried about selling them from uh, who we sell them to. And the Chinese, I think, have, you know, from time to time, they've used it as a retaliatory tool. I think I've told the story of when in the 80s, they got mad at us to stop buying wheat for a while. So, I mean, they know how to play that game. But in the end, it's not something they can go without. And our sector has proved uh, pretty resilient. I mean, if I were McKillop, the uh, U.S. Uh, the, the negotiator, I'd be looking at areas with uh, significant population growth. Areas are getting bigger where there's going to be more people eating, which means I'd be looking at uh, I'd be looking at Africa and the Middle East. China just had a decline in in population last year for the first time in a long time. That's a trend that's going to continue. That doesn't mean they're going to stop the people that they're going to stop eating. It's a, still a huge market, but you want to also look for areas of growth and areas where we are not right now significantly involved. And with uh, AGOA, the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act coming up for renewal in 2025, uh, Congress is beginning to talk about that, think about that. CSIS is beginning to have events about that. So other markets are going to be on on people's minds. So I think it's entirely a good thing. The only comment I made that's, that's noteworthy is when the data came out with, with the annual trade data came out, the interesting thing about um, agriculture was that Imports and exports were up in terms of value, but down in terms of volume. And that's largely uh, the price effect and inflation effect. Prices have gone up, and they've gone up not just here. They've gone up everywhere. So our farmers are making more money because the price of corn, wheat, soybeans, or whatever has, has been going up. That doesn't mean they're making more money because the costs of their inputs are going up, going up as well because of inflation. But with volumes going down, I think that is a little bit worrisome. Because it suggests that that you know our our tonnage or our our bushelage, if that's the right word, it may be shrinking a little bit, and that's something that the agriculture department needs to look at. Fortunately, there's a farm bill this year, probably a topic of future Trade Guys podcasts in the summer once things really get moving on it, and we'll see what they do to deal with that. Yeah, we've talked before about uh, inflation in both the uh, inputs to agriculture, like fertilizer and diesel fuel, things like that, that are that are vitally important in production agriculture. That's what's showing up now in both higher prices per unit, but lower unit volume. I would note that uh, $40 billion plus of exports to China is a record. It's a pretty darn good number. And quietly, it exceeded the Trump administration's phase one goals for agriculture purchases by China, which was $36.5 billion. So two years late. Better late than never. And that fact of achieving the the phase one goal might lead on to phase two and some relief for people like American Optical. Well, let me finish with one question, which is mostly a process question, but this has come up in other contexts as the United States tries to 
find different markets outside of China for exports. How does the United States identify who wants to buy our goods? And then how do they go about doing a deal to make sure our goods can get there? Is this only available through a formal trade negotiation or is there some sort of other avenue? And then conversely, I know this has come up a lot in the critical sectors that the administration identified in its supply chain reviews. How do countries signal that they want stuff from us? You know, How do they raise their hand to participate more robustly in our trade policy? Well, look, there's an army of people at the Foreign Agriculture Service of the USDA that keeps tabs on global demand of a whole range of commodities, ones that we purchase and ones that we consume, as well as markets that we support via export. So almost every crop has its own analysts who look at the products and how they're made. This includes processed foods, which are part of the part of both the import and export business of, of agriculture in an important way. Processed foods often combine a lot of ingredients, but the value-added part of, of agriculture is vitally important. But we do a good job of, of kind of knowing where to go. As I do, I remember uh, using USDA Foreign Ag Service statistics regularly in some of the food, processed food businesses I've, I've worked on in the past. We know the answers to that primarily. There's also an extensive network of government promotion efforts on behalf of agriculture. There are some agricultural crops and products where farmers essentially pay a fee, uh, pay a tax to USDA, which is used exclusively for market promotion. And USDA has uh, attachés in some of our embassies abroad, and their job is marketing. There are virtually every crop has an association of the growers and sometimes the processors or refiners, depending on the nature of the product. And they're engaged in marketing efforts as well. So there's a huge network of activity on this. If people overseas want to buy something from the United States, it's not hard for them to find out where to go to get it and, you know, enter in a negotiation to make a deal. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, another insightful episode of The Trade Guys, and we will be back next week and look forward to touching base then. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast. Listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.